Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make the second half of life even better than the first. In an age driven by science and technology, Dr. Stephen G. Post is a rare blend of scientist and humanist, a best-selling author and transformative speaker who has inspired thousands of people with his profound work on giving behavior. As we look forward to Thanksgiving, Stephen Post will begin today's episode by talking about the life-enhancing benefits of giving. Give and live better, says Dr. Post, who is the lead author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Healthier, Happier Life by the Single Act of Giving. A growing body of research shows that when we give of ourselves, everything from self-satisfaction to self-realization and physical health is significantly affected. Depression is reduced, well-being is increased, mortality is delayed. Beyond his broad research on giving, Stephen will talk about a particular kind of giving, caregiving. The author of the recently published book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease, he has earned international recognition for his acclaimed work on bioethics and compassionate care for people with dementia. Currently, Stephen is director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook, School Universe, Stony Brook University School of Medicine in New York, a place where the human side of medicine is elevated, examined, and revered. He also serves as the president of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which he co-founded with philanthropist Sir John Templeton. Indeed, there has always been a spiritual side to Stephen from the start, and his life work blends an extraordinary exploration of positive psychology, altruism, love, happiness, and the mystery of the human mind. So now it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest, Stephen G. Post. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. I could not be more pleased than to be sharing this time with you. Yes, and I am pleased too. We've had several conversations and I'm delighted to keep our conversations going. Um, now, you, you've had really an extraordinary career, Stephen, and it covers a lot of ground. But rather than, than try to retrace that ground, I'm, I'm just curious, um, you know, your current position kind of says it in terms of the, the range of your uh, interests and expertise. Uh, so I'm just interested, were there any like pivotal moments in your life when you, when you realize, aha, uh-huh, okay, this is not going to be a traditional career. <laughs> I'm, oh. going, I'm going to be blending a lot of things and going from, you know, journey to journey and strand to strand, stream to stream. Well, I've always been shockingly open-minded, and I like to see the connections. I think analogically more than in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. So I see how that connects with this, and and uh, it's been my style of mind. Mm-hmm. I think most problems in today's world can't be resolved by kind of narrow, linear thinking. It requires mm-hmm. a lot of interdisciplinarity and thinking about things from very, very different perspectives and, uh, you know, exuding uh, an attitude of appreciation and tolerance. So that's always been my, my MO and, uh, and I've been happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I I guess, you know, visually for me, it's, it's uh, what they call mind mapping, right? You start putting one thing here and then it 
connects to another thing and another thing here and you start connecting the dots and pretty soon you've got whole brain with all those connections, neural connections between the different, you know, issues and, and problems. Yeah, absolutely. And so I've never been siloed. That's what I would say. I've never been a silo person. A lot of academics are caught up in their little discipline and they'll trot out one or two more papers a year on Jonathan Edwards in, uh, you know, 1742. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, uh, I've always been uh, crossing the boundaries, uh, doing um, medical humanities in medical schools, uh, you know, being a scientist, but also being a humanist and a poet and, and a popular writer. Uh, I've been involved at the interface of science and philosophy and religion, and therefore worked very heavily with Sir John Templeton for many years setting up uh, so many of his great visionary projects. Uh, so I've been very lucky and, and Stony Brook's been a good place for me because they have more than tolerated me. They've actually embraced my style mm -hmm. and I've been able to connect with all kinds of clinicians and medical students. In fact, we have more students in our um, area of, of scholarly concentration uh, in the class of 25 than even basic science and research. So it's very impressive. I think it's a tribute to the students here who know that healing is more than uh, responding to disease, but it's responding to the illness experience subjectively considered. Right. And so therefore a kind word can go a very long way. Right. And gentle curiosity uh, can, can save a person's life. Right. Right. So let's, um, we'll, we'll get into some of this, especially you worked with uh, Sir John Templeton later, but I did want to, um, you know, let's start since it, since we are looking, you know, toward Thanksgiving this week, you know, it's not your most recent book, but it's one of your um, important books uh, uh, when good things happen to good people. Um, and you, you cite some great examples of, you know, simple acts of giving. And, you know, so there, there are, there's obviously a psychological dimension, but there's actually a physical dimension that you describe in terms of it actually improves people's health. So, so talk a little bit about you know your your thoughts about giving behavior. Sure, will and gratitude, by the way, is a form of giving. When mm -hmm. you offer thanks, uh, it is somewhat routine, but it can also be very altruistic and very generative and very uplifting for people. Not that everyone needs an expression of gratitude when they're uh, contributing to the lives of others, but it can be beneficial for them and it can spark their energies. But giving, you know, Sir John um, uh, always said uh, way back in 1990 uh, that uh, love heals. Mm -hmm. And he believed that uh, the great secret of life is the golden rule in its positive formulation. Mm -hmm. Not the minimal negative formulation, don't do unto others as you would not have them do unto you, which means you can go home tonight. And if you have not uh, elbowed some innocent person <laughs> in the ribs, you can feel great about yourself. No, more idealistic version, do unto others. So use your minds and your creativity to figure out how you can best contribute to the people around you. And I live that way. I get up in the morning, usually about five, and I meditate and visualize most of the people 
I know that I'm going to meet over the course of the day. I keep an old-fashioned notebook, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I ask myself, what do they really need? Well, um, some of them need some forgiveness because they've made a medical error. So mm-hmm. I know they need me to tell them, well, those who make no mistakes make nothing, quoting Martin Luther King. Right. <clears throat> or maybe some of them need some compassion because they've really been suffering over their wayward child or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Some of them need uh, what I call carefrontation, a term I coined with M. Scott Peck. Oh, um, yeah. Wrote, mm-hmm. Yeah, wrote The Road Less Traveled. Um, because we didn't like confrontation because it's so divisive. But carefrontation means that you're going to be able to address waywardness when we leave really our core values and stray. Mm-hmm. Carefrontation allows us to be that velvet hammer in a loving form that brings people back on track and makes them appreciative and and creates a kind of glue that sticks. So all those things, creativity, some people really need a an idea about a paper. In fact, many of the medical students come in here and they have a wonderful idea, but they really don't quite know how to pull it off. So I spent a lot of time helping them with uh, creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things, forgiveness, is an expression of love. Uh, so I don't think of love directly because it's a term that most people think of, uh, you know, well, they think of it, uh, the love of designer genes, the love of chocolate, and not so much the love of humanity. Right, uh, right. But it's all these manifestations of that commitment to the well-being and, this, and the security of those around us that people can easily connect with, compassion, they easily connect with that. So we right. we have a, a center here that focuses on training in compassionate care right. and empathy. Those are all very important aspects of what I would call an overall love philosophy, right. which I've had since I was a kid in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you've mentioned to me before that there's actually a body of research that supports this, and it's not simply you know um, altruistic thinking. Um, it's it's something that uh, actually does contribute to your health and longevity. Yeah, so it's kind giving that's important. Emphasis kind. Mm-hmm. You know, people give, people are altruistic, other regarding, for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are pretty dry. Um, when you interview people like we do here who were 9-11 responders, it wasn't that they were doing that because of some profound empathic love but because it was what they had to do, given that they were firemen mm-hmm. or police, it was it was their role, it was their station, it was their duty, it was part of their job description, if you will. Um, and and uh, so in the Navy, they say uh, um, you never abandon a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the you know the other ways of thinking about this, for some, you know, it's it's really a matter of. Uh, uh, genetic impulse, mm-hmm. just a kind of saving impulse that some of the geneticists, genetics people say is kind of misdirected from the fail- family unit to uh, humanity as a whole, which is almost kind of a promiscuous diversion because huh. you shouldn't be loving all people. Uh, and, you know, so, but, but I think that the love that interests me and the altruism that interests me involves emotion uh, you know, when my dad, my dad was in the Navy in World War II, and he was in, he was responsible for building the submarine net 
mm. across New York Harbor, which was down where the Verrazano Narrows Bridge is now. Wow. And uh, he jumped, he got a wonderful letter from uh, Frank Knox, who was Secretary of the Navy, uh, congratulating him and, and commending him for jumping into the cold, icy waters of New York Harbor to save uh, a worker who had fallen into the waves. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, you know, I, as, as I grew up, I asked my dad, so did you ever visit him? Huh. No, I said, did you ever talk with him? Did you really ever have much interest in him? No, he said, I was in the Navy and that's what we do. Huh. And so it was a role altruism. But that's different than than what we see in the clinical settings where patients really need to feel an affective or an emotional presence. And if they don't feel that, somehow they don't feel comfortable, they don't feel secure. So um, uh, that's the kind of empathy and kindness and compassion that really helps us because it it recenters us emotionally from anxiety, and from concerns about self and the problems of the self, it shifts our emotional uh, mindset uh, toward toward the other. And it involves the mesolimbic pathway in the brain. It involves uh, the release of certain uh, uh, connecting hormones like uh, the endorphins, but also uh, uh, others, which I won't go into. But the nice thing is that you really do um, get into a whole different frame of being, and it's very peaceful. It's very tranquil. Uh, it brings people into a state of joy. They talk about the helper's high. Mm-hmm. So you're not fretting about everything. Uh, now you're you're in a better uh, a better place, and that's a beautiful thing to do. And it does contribute to health uh, and uh, uh, emotional happiness, and also even longevity mm-hmm. to some degree. Right. Right. So this is what you're really talking about in terms of compassionate care, right? This is sort of a description of, you know, beginning of, because that's something I want to talk about more about, but but this is the beginning of that discussion, right? I mean, that's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not just going through the motions, you know, I, I mean, and, and I say this with a lot of sympathy for clinicians mm-hmm. now because they came into medicine wanting to really be there and present for their patients. But you know you've got these things called revenue units, right? And chronological pressures all around. Plus, you've got to keep up with your medical records, which is almost a full-time job now. So they get frustrated, and and they can be running on empty. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when they're running on empty, it's very hard for them to have the kind of authentic compassion and empathy and listening that patients can pick up. Patients really do pick that up. And, um, and and it's so sad when someone who can be technically very proficient uh, loses that beautiful quality. Uh, so we work with them and we give them tips and we do all kinds of exercises uh, to help them uh, maintain that. Uh, and it's a very interesting process, but it resulted in us winning the Alpha Omega Alpha Annual Award in, in 2019. Mm-hmm or uh, education in professional identity formation centered on compassion. That's a national award. It goes to one medical school a year, and Mm. we got it. Wow. Well, that's great. You know, it it is really important. And I I do recall many years ago when uh, one of my brothers who uh, uh, 
uh, became an ophthalmologist uh, and he joined a practice. And I remember in the early days, you know, this was um, the beginning of sort of, um, uh, well, corporate medicine, you know, there was a lot of focus on, on you know, revenue generation and sort of systemization and efficiency. And um, uh, I remember he, uh, I don't remember if it was when his residency. Or pra- I thought it was, I think it wasn't a practice. Anyway, he, he said that, that one of his, uh, you know, senior colleagues uh, came to him and said, you know, um, I think you're spending a little bit too much time with your patients. <laughs> and he was like, what? What, what do you mean? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm trying to fi- find out what they need, what, you know, what the issue is. I, it's not always very easy. Like, what is actually the problem? Um, and and uh, I'll never forget that conversation and, and just recognizing, good for you, Lair. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, yeah. I got a phone call last week from a cardiologist in Virginia who uh, went through our MA program in medical humanism and compassionate care. Mm -hmm. And he got the same message from his boss. You're spending too much time with patients. He was only spending 15 minutes max with the patient. But he said, you know, this is what really matters to me. It's what really motivates me. And, you know, I really implore you to let me do this in my own style. But he got a little bit of a kickback. So he's now looking around for another kind of place where he can really flourish. Because if people aren't working in an environment where they can flourish, they will hopefully move on or else they will burn out. And all of our studies show that even in medical school, if you're identified by your peers as more empathic, you will not have the same problem with burnout down the road in residency or in future clinical practice. Right. Yeah, this, this is really critical. And it's not easy. I, I recognize that there there are there are constraints, there are demands, you know, you, you, you set up, you know, schedule of seeing patients and, um, you know, sometimes things happen, you know, um, consultations take longer than you expect. So you have patients waiting and getting irritated and you're like, I'm sorry, we're doing the best we can. Things happen. You don't expect them. You've got to pay attention to the, the patient and to what their needs are. So, yep. you know, you know, it, it's not, I, I grant, it's not always easy to do that. Um, so, But when you're looking at the wall, typing into a computer, and your patient is sitting there wondering what's going on, you just need to turn around, swivel around and say, gee, I apologize ahead of time. I've got to focus in on this medical record right now, right. but I'll be with you more deeply in a minute. Right. And that, that we teach the students to do that. Right. We teach them many little tricks of the trade, like organizing their schedule. So right. in the morning, they get all the patients who they know just want to get in and out. Right. right. Primary care. And then in the afternoon, they schedule the patients who really want to be there to connect. Right. And so, so hold they, that thought. Hold that thought. We're, we're going to take a quick break, uh, Stephen. But when we come back, don't go anywhere, folks. We'll be, we'll be coming back with much more from Stephen Post. Uh, the director of the Center of Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel channel the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com you're listening to 45 forward to reach ron roel or his guest on the program please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com that's ron.roel at gmail.com now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks, to 45 Forward, where we're talking to Stephen Post, an international speaker, best-selling author, and director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassion Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. Um, now, before we continue, I wanted to just mention that you can find out much more about Stephen on his website. That's just Stephen Post. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N post.com, or you can go to my website, rowellresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab, and you can see uh, Stephen's background there and some references to some of his work and how you can get in touch with him. So uh, before the break, we were talking with uh, Stephen about um, compassionate care um, and uh, the, the impact on, on the, the patient's. And as well as yourself, uh, the caregiver. So I wanted to just shift a little bit to a specific kind of caregiving that that relates to his uh, current book, um, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. Now, I think that, that November is is one of the Alzheimer's Awareness Month, so we're right you know, in that area of, of thought about this issue. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you about, Stephen, is uh, the interesting um, term you say, dignity for deeply forgetful people. So talk about that term. What, how do you come up with that term? What does it mean? Well, dignity means to hold in grace, mm-hmm. not to be derisive, not to be demeaning, but really the more unique term is deeply forgetful people. Right. So for 30 years, I've been working a lot with caregivers all over the country and all over the world. I've never felt comfortable, Ron, with the word dementia. Mm -hmm. Because if you just look at it structurally, it's about a decline, de mentia, from a former mental state. It reminds me of the word retard. Right. And we don't use that much anymore. We don't speak about people as retarded. We might speak about them as differently abled, Mm -hmm. possibly handicapped. Um, And so I wanted something for this population that didn't just kind of separate them from us and there, but for the grace of God, go I. I wanted something that emphasized a little more the continuities 
between their experiences and our own. Mm -hmm. Hey, in this medical school on any, any given day, I may go out in the big parking lot and forget where I parked my car. And I have to ask a medical student, do you know where I parked my car? Right. And they may laugh a little bit. And then sometimes I'll say, do you know if I drove to work today? And that's a little <laughs> more serious. But, but, you know, we all have these moments and we're, we're frustrated because we forget uh, a name in our short-term memory is not what we think it might have been once upon a time. That's perfectly normal. So um, deep forgetfulness suggests that, yeah, you know, people with quote unquote dementia are a little more uh, along on the on the on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But we all experience forgetfulness. Uh, and sometimes it can be pretty deep and pretty surprising, and we're frustrated by it. But for sure, uh, their experience is not completely different than ours. And also, they they still um, have all the other human attributes and qualities that you would uh, consider fundamental to being a part of the human family. Mm-hmm. They have creativity. They're amazingly creative. You know, uh, de Kooning painted for 13 and a half years of his 14 years with Alzheimer's disease in his loft in Greenwich Village. Mm. And his work actually became more more, uh, flowing, more tranquil, Mm. because I think he sort of forgot about the I don't do nothing for nothing attitude out there (laughs) on Bleecker Street. Um, I think he was disinhibited. I think a a sort of inherent kindness in him was disinhibited. And that happens uh, with these individuals. Sometimes it goes the other way. But for sure, they can be very creative. They can chime in on deeply learned music. There's a huge movement called Music in Memory. Right. A wonderful documentary video um, uh, called Alive Inside that Mm -hmm. won every kind of award at Sundance. So I, I I just think it's incredible. I was on the board for a while of, of the Memory Center in Brooklyn Heights, and they have Alzheimer's poets. So mm. they'll bring in you know thirty or forty people who are deeply forgetful, and their their heads are down. You know they're not communicating with their caregivers, who's there. They call them care partners, actually, mm-hmm. which is an interesting language as well. And uh, when that poet or poets in the middle of that room begin to recite. The road less traveled with animation, with energy, with kindness, with musicality, like Robert Bly. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, suddenly, these people will chime in. And as I've witnessed it, you know, 80 to 90% of them will chime in for a line or sometimes for a whole mm-hmm. verse. And there are some who will just stand up and just recite the whole poem. And then afterwards, they'll be conversant for a few minutes. Then they'll go back where they were. But it's been totally inspiring for their caregivers because they realize, you know what? Grandma's still there. She's not a husk. She's not a shell. She's not empty. She's not dead. She's not gone. All those negative metaphors that the word dementia invites. Right. Right. And so I'm into deep forgetfulness as almost a mystical term. Mm. And you're a Yale graduate. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you, I I, I knew a great uh, New Testament scholar um, at Yale uh, who um, had a wonderful wife named Janet, and she succumbed to Alzheimer's disease. And for several years, she would float around the Yale uh, um, Divinity School campus on Prospect Street, and Mm -hmm. people would guide her around and try to talk with her, but she got progressively worse. 
But when she went to the set to the services on Sunday morning uh, in the in the Yale Chapel, she would identify with the music because that's the music she grew up with. Mm-hmm. She would identify with the colors in the stained glass window. She would identify with the prayers that she had been reciting since she was a young girl. You know, this is Leander Keck's wife, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, and she would chime into these beautiful hymns, and 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 she came to life. Uh, her emotions would 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 become vibrant. And you could you could, yes. you could just feel her presence, and then afterwards, by many 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 self reports. She would be conversant with her old friends, mm-hmm. you know, for at least, you know, four or five, six minutes. And then, okay, she would lapse back. But what happened is that everybody knew because they had seen it and felt it and mm-hmm. interacted with her that Janet Keck was still there, even though she was deeply forgetful. So right. she wasn't that different from you and me anyway. Mm. Yeah, so that's what you refer to as paradoxical uh, lucidity. Is that the term? You yeah, know? yeah. I, I like the word paradoxical. That's another term I, I coined long ago. Not to, not meaning uh, terminal lucidity, like end of life lucidity, which you sometimes hear about, but really that people who have not been communicative for a long while can suddenly surprise you. Mm-hmm. So I define hope in the book as being open to surprises. Okay, right. Um, I, mean, I was doing a talk on on uh, deep forgetfulness at the Time Center in New York about eight years ago, and there was a one, wonderful woman on a panel that followed who'd written a book about caregiving for her mother, and she emailed me a few days later, and she said, "I was thinking about what you said because yesterday my mother looked at me intently, and she said." God, physics, and the universe. <laughs> she was an MIT physics professor. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so, the, so you, you have to be open to these things and feel them. In, the, in New York, there's something called the Unforgettables Choir, hmm. which comes out of NYU, and um, they have a great Alzheimer's center there. But they organize people around New York, caregivers and people who are affected by deep forgetfulness. Right. And you know, they'll join together and they'll do rehearsals of very meaningful, deeply learned uh, music. It could come from Broadway, it could come from wherever, but they'll connect with it. And then in the process, they become uh, more ambulatory, they become more affective and emotional and expressive, and it just brings them together. And it's just absolutely a miracle. So you have to always see, I went, just one last comment on this, I went to a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio, which is about an hour away from Cleveland. And uh, I I spent a lot of time at Case Medical School, 20 years. And um, Joe Foley, a distinguished neurologist, and I went to this uh, nursing home, and and they had a special care unit for people with dementia. We read the bio sketch on the wall about a guy named Jim. And I asked the nurse to take us to Jim. We, We went over to Jim. I took him by the arm, and we sat down. And I said, Jim, how are your boys? And he was agitated. He couldn't communicate verbally, but he seemed agitated. But then I asked him, because I remember from the bio sketch, how's Jake and how's Danny? And he just lit up. If if joy was electric, he would have put the place on fire. Mm -hmm. Because I was using language in a way to remind him 
of these things. And so you have to learn how to communicate. And then he had a twig in his hand. So I'll never forget. It was a white, a painted white twig, and it was rounded on the edges so he couldn't poke anybody. You know, it was pretty pretty thick. And he put it in my in the palm of my hands. And and he looked at me and he said, God is love. Hmm. It turns out I didn't know what that possibly could refer to. I asked the nurse, what's the story with that twig? And she said that Jim grew up on a farm uh, near near Chardon, and his father, whom he loved very much, gave him one chore in the morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. Hmm. So Jim, like a lot of these individuals, you know, he, he he had gone back in time to that point in his life where he was experiencing tender, loving care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of love. And so you, you don't ever think that love abandons these individuals. They actually can be more sensitive to love and empathy and compassion and kindness than most of us are as we run around from point A to point B. And there was a rag doll on the floor. I'll end this little vignette here. Yeah, It was so beat up. It looked like it had been torn apart 50 years ago. And he ambulated to, toward it. He picked it up. And he went over into the corner and he put it on the lap of a woman who was crying in her chair. And she stopped crying. And I said to the nurse, so what's the story with that rag doll? It's one of those puppet dolls you put on your hands, a bear doll. Oh, okay. And she said, well, that's her doll. So look, Jim, he may have not been memory intact, but he had a lot of emotional intelligence. Right. More so than a whole lot of people. Right. In today's uh, distressed world. Right. Yeah, I think that that's something that, uh, you know, we worry about, um, you know, communicating with those deeply forgetful people. Uh, And yes, there are issues about, you know, decision making and, you know, relationships between, you know, what's happening now, the past, the future and the present. And, you know, people talk about, well, these people are in the present and and that really is where most of us talk about where we should be. Right? We're always talking about be present, just be present. And, and these folks are present. And to appreciate that, and, and, and it does take some skill, as you mentioned. So, you know, you don't say to somebody, as you mentioned, like, how are your boys? And, and say, to, say to them, well, um, okay, um, how does, uh, you know, what boys? You know, they have, to, they have to make, you know, thoughts about who, you know, what boys are you talking about? So you say specifically, you know, the names of these so they can respond to it. They're not you know, trying to answer, you know, uh, complex questions. Uh, but once they, that you get through that, um, you do um, appreciate the, their emotional state. There is a tremendous, as you put it, emotional intelligence. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to appreciate as opposed to always focusing in, okay, how do I manage this situation? Um, and, and also, as you pointed out earlier, there's, it is difficult, but I think we do spend a lot of time worrying about um, managing things and taking care of them and, and not just being with them and appreciating how much they are like us. You know what I mean? Oh, I think every caregiver should sing mm. with their loved one. Just sing to them gently those songs that they so loved earlier in life and just be open because it's very likely 
that you will bring them back into themselves. They'll get somatic and rhythmic and connect with you and light up emotionally. And they may even have a few surprising words. So that's what you want to do artistically, musically, in so many ways. There was a guy I described in the book who would come to an art class. And every day he had a black crayon and pad of paper. He'd just scribble around, but there was always a line down the middle of this pad of paper. And people would ask him, so what is this? And he couldn't respond. But then one morning, shockingly, he said, it's a map so my daughter can find her way to my house. Mm. There you go. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there, you know, I, I do uh, uh, recall, you know, one of my um, one of my brothers and I, you know, with my mother, I've told the story before, but it, it's when when she was deeply forgetful, you know, and we would just sort of spend time with her. Um, we we would um, uh, one day my my brother pulled out, uh, you know, uh, some of my my mother's uh, songs that she would teach us when we were young, and uh, you know, we didn't. We, we, I guess we sang, but we we there were a couple of songs that she sang to us in Spanish. And uh, at one point, um, she uh, she said to us, well, I, I'm going to hold that thought because we're going to come to a break. But when we come back to break, I'm going to finish this story and, and explain what what the uh, the connection was and, and the, the the deep lucidity that came out from that moment. So don't folks well, don't go anywhere. We're going to take another short break, but we'll be talking much more with Stephen Post uh, when we come back from the break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with uh, Stephen G. Post from the uh, Center for Medical Humanities, Compassion and Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. Before the break, I was uh, in the midst of a story. We were talking about um, uh, lucidity, a par- paradox of lucidity. And I was telling about, talking to Stephen about my mom when we had one of these moments with a brother of mine when uh, we pulled out some, you know, some music that, you know, from a song that she taught us when we were quite small. And, um, you know, we hadn't, she hadn't been very verbal, you know, for quite some time. And, uh, you know, it was a song in Spanish that she taught us. Uh, um, it was just called Parito Bello, Pretty Bird. And uh, at one point in, in the song, it's, it just says Parito Bello, Negro y Amarillo, which is pretty bird, black and yellow. And my, my brother and I, we sang a little bit of it. And then she sort of brightened up. And then, you know, at a moment she just said, Amarillo. You know, because yellow was one of her favorite colors. And, you know, that's what I understand. The colors are still quite vibrant for those who are deeply forgetful. That's part of their emotional fabric. And as you mentioned, even music and colors, um, that emotional component to, you know, I guess the, often they respond to being in nature. If that's what they, you know. The, well, they love the fall leaves and, and the smell of an apple pie that might remind them of grandma's kitchen when they were kids. I mean, they're very much alive. They're, I, I was I mentioned to you um, once upon a time that I had been in a town in India called Bangalore mm-hmm. and I'd been invited to the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies to do a conference on the deeply forgetful. And I was talking about how they can always respond to symbols. That could be the colors, the amarillo. Mm-hmm. That could be uh, uh, you know a sacred item that could be a an artifact, a, a cowboy hat that they always wore and identified with. Their linear rationality may fade, but their symbolic rationality is always there. And you can always take advantage of that. So um, I was giving this talk and I was being quite critical of the Western idea that, well, somehow, if you're not a moral agent and you're not rational and intact cognitively, then you really don't count so much. Sort of like the Germans in the World War II said people with dementia were life unworthy of life, useless eaters, and so forth, because from a strictly utilitarian economic viewpoint, they, they're not contributing, if you will. So um, this fellow came in the uh, back of the conference center. There were about 200 people there, mm-hmm. Hindu neurologists, Hindu philosophers. And after I was done, he put his hand down on the table and he said, you're absolutely right. There's no justification for thinking less of the moral status of someone who is deeply forgetful uh, than someone who is perfectly memory capacitated. And that was his holiness. Mm. So the Dalai Lama uh, endorsed this book very nicely. And, and, and he says that he, it's consciousness that really matters mm. in terms of morals and ethics. That if they have, if they can enjoy that, color, those leaves, those musical sounds, that creativity, they're conscious beings and they're still worthy of our concern. Right, right. Well, no, we're going to get back to that toward the end of the program. I want to uh, 
talk more about that. But before we do, I just wanted to shift a little bit to the clinical side of it, because you've mentioned to me and that, you know, that dementia is a complicated disease. And I think that one of your colleagues, uh, uh, Peter Whitehouse, wrote a book on the myth of, of Alzheimer's and it was controversial at the time. And he, he, he objected and said, well, it's not controversial. It's basically just acknowledging that it's not a singular condition caused by a singular problem. And one of the things that you talk about that sort of links a lot of your um, thoughts is about the impact of, of things like stress or, or perhaps even environmental pollution as a potential contributor. Talk about that a little bit, Stephen. So about 15 years ago, I went to a conference at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, of really premier neurologists. Only 15 or 20 of them were invited, and I was a good listener and, and made some comments and wrote a paper with them. But uh, at that point, they were just coming around to acknowledge that stress is one factor in the origins of Alzheimer's disease for any mm. given individual. It's not just maybe a susceptibility gene. It's not just aging, which is always a contributory factor, um, but it can be many things of which stress is one, because when you look at protracted stress, when people are stressed out in this age of anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, WHO in the age of anxiety, um, they're under, you know, their stress hormones tend to be high. And uh, if that goes on for a long period of time, you know, they, they tend to have vascular difficulties. There's a wonderful book called Anger Kills by uh, Virginian and uh, Robert uh, Redfield of Duke. Um, they tend to get vascular coagulation. They also tend to have slower wound healing by just, you know, 10% or so. But also there's something called hippocampal atrophy. So the hippocampus, which is in the deep emotional part of the brain, it's the part of the brain that lays down short-term memories and also reacts to stress and fear. Mm -hmm. And so when you are uh, under high stress hormones for long periods of time, you see atrophy in the hippocampus. And that's one of the two or three hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So, well, maybe it's stress disease too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's sort of dis-ease, the actual, you know, you're, 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 there's a discomfort that's caused yeah. by stress. Yeah. 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 And, and 100, 100, 100 years ago, dementia wasn't much caused by Alzheimer's because people weren't living that long. Mm -hmm. And what, what was causing dementia, which is a syndrome, a cluster of symptoms, neurosyphilis. There were no antibiotics. There was a lot of syphilis around. And that's what was causing dementia. It's also dementia secondary to Parkinson's, mm -hmm. secondary to chronic traumatic encephalitis, concussions and the like. So Alzheimer's probably contributes maybe to 50% of the cases of dementia, but it's usually combined with small stroke events in the white matter of the brain with other factors, including, by the way, as some of my colleagues now believe, lead. They actually mm -hmm. think that lead poisoning uh, may contribute to uh, Alzheimer's disease. Isn't that mm. interesting? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's what you were mentioning, the sort of the environmental factors that could contribute mm -hmm. to it, um, that kind of toxicity or pollution. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, there's just a lot we don't know. And, and uh, so I think your open mind is important in terms of this. And, and then linking the stress, you know, you know, going back in the circling back to um, the impact on, um, you know, sort of giving and kindness. So you've done a lot of work in positive psychology as it, as it relates to de-stressing, but also in, in a proactive way. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you're, and that's, uh, I guess, also part of your work with um, um, Sir John Templeton and the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Again, not in that broader notion of love, not the, you know, hedonic love, but, but uh, you know, the many kinds of love that you talk about. Absolutely. I, uh, I do believe that love is the ultimate reality. Okay. Like that. Now, uh, Sir John Templeton, who was a mentor for me, believed that too. Uh, and in fact, when he was dying, he got to me a week or so before he passed away through his son, Jack Templeton, uh, who was a pediatric trauma surgeon at CHOP in Philadelphia. Uh, and he, and Jack called me and he said, Dad wants you to do him a favor. He's dying and there's a book he wants to write that he's not going to have time to write, but he wants you to do it. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's quite a challenge. Did he give you a title? And he said, yes. Ultimate reality is unlimited love. And I said, Jack, could you go back to your dad and say, can we get a question mark, please? <laughs> so Jack came back a couple of minutes later. And he said, yeah, is ultimate reality unlimited love? And, you know, there are a lot of physicists, quantum physicists, who do think that somehow there is this incredibly mysterious energy underlying the universe as we know it, uh, that somehow is behind the thermodynamic constants uh, that give rise to a generative planet or a generative universe, um, that somehow life isn't just like an English still life portrait, but it's a it's a it's a buzzing, uh, uh, disappearing, reappearing uh, uh, set of particles that uh, really uh, express an energy that is absolutely profound and possibly an energy of love. So that's right. what Sir John believed, and so I did write that book for the Templeton Foundation. Mm -hmm. But the, so so I was sitting in my office. I was at Case Medical School for twenty years, and it's two thousand. And I've run around with Sir John um, doing all these things uh, on positive psychological notions like kindness, gratitude, forgiveness, wisdom, and the like, and, and helping to fund big projects in these areas at major universities. Um, and so um, I, got a, I got a fax from Sir John who lived in Lyford Key, which is in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. Now he didn't email Ron, he was kind of, it wasn't his thing. But Sir John believed that the fax machine was the coolest invention ever, <laughs> even more than the automobile. So sometimes you could get 10 or 12 faxes from Sir John, and you had to respond to them. So I got a fax one morning. I remember it was bright and sunny. I was sitting in my office, and it said, we need to start an institute to study the greatest human experience, the greatest human asset available to us. And and, and I faxed back Sir John, what's that? And he said, unlimited love. And, and then he would say, not just human love, which is a little bit unsteady and sometimes unwise and mm -hmm. uh, can easily be reversed into hate. But he said, 
the love that made humans. Hmm. That was Sir John. And 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 he said the love that heals. And uh, he said the love that allows us to discover our deeper selves. And so then I faxed back. I said, Sir John, because I was at Case Medical School and I was actually doing genetics uh, research on Alzheimer's. Wow. And I did wonder a little bit what what my buddies would have to say. Right. So I faxed back, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism. Because, you know, altruism is a very dry, sciencey term and it's more acceptable. Right. But it is dry. So he faxed back, no, I think unlimited love up to $8.9 million. <laughs> and I faxed back uh, just what you would have faxed back, Ron. Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. <laughs> and we were off and running. And we funded, you know, we still fund things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're actually uh, funding a big national survey right now about love and caregivers for mm. the deeply forgetful and how many times they've experienced in their loved one those moments of lucidity and what that meant to them. Did it bring them more alive in their caregiving? Did they begin to feel the value of what they were doing? That they've, Did they begin to feel more loving as a result? Mm -hmm. So you don't have that, but it's going to come out in the next half year, and I think it's going to hit the headlines. Mm -hmm. So we study love. We studied uh, it, 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 in so many respects, uh, and we continue to do so, and that is my passion. Wow, that's great. That's great. Yeah, and uh, my passion is doing shows like this, and um, we're, we're actually coming to a close, um, unfortunately, but we'll have to keep, have you come back for another show. So, Stephen, it's been a real pleasure having you here, and uh, before we go, I want to mention people um, that uh how they can get in touch with you uh just a slight correction i realized you mentioned to me during a previous break that your website is stephen g post at gmail.com that's s-t-e-p-h-e-n-g post at at uh, well that's your your dot com is the is the um, website and uh, you can reach you by just you know uh emailing you at that at gmail address yes um so um anyway i, I want to thank you again and and uh and folks uh, you can tell your friends that you missed my conversation with dr post today you can listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com uh, just search for my show 45 forward uh, you can listen to it on apple and google podcasts spotify iheart radio or rowellresources.com just click on the 45 forward tab so uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Dr. Jay Baruch, professor of emergency medicine at Brown University's Albert Medical School. And he'll be talking about his life's work as a practicing emergency physician, writer, medical educator, and accidental academic. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional 